0: We upload a new speaker every day, and it's easy to subscribe by searching for NAPOD, N-A-P-O-D, all one word, on any podcast player app, or go to napod.xyz if you'd like to listen online. Hope you enjoy the podcast and have a great day.
1: I'd like to introduce tonight's guest speaker. His name is Jamo, and he's from Jersey City, and he's going to give us a really good talk tonight.
2: <laughs> my name is James, and I'm a recovered alcoholic. Lack of SpongeBob is not my dilemma. It's funny when Mike bought this for me because I believe the Simpsons and SpongeBob just make people happy. And he said I was going to wait for your two year anniversary but I couldn't, I couldn't wait. It looks like spandex SpongeBob underwear. But I, I love it. Thank you Mike. Um, I say recovered. I went to my, uh, I go to Minnesota twice a year to see my grand sponsor and we all meet up with the guys we sponsor. And I go there twice a year and I ask him the question. I said, are we in recovery or are we recovered? I already knew how, what I believed in my heart. And he said, son, we've got to be crystal clear to people inside and outside Alcoholics Anonymous that we don't do this anymore. And that made so much sense to me. He says, what's recovery you mean? You just drank on Saturdays? So, and you know, the cool thing about Alcoholics Anonymous is you could be either one and we love you anyway. You know, I got my A bookmobile up here. I don't know why I feel the need to do this, but I'm going to do it. This is in our service manual on S1. It says, our 12th step, carrying the message, is the basic service that the AA Fellowship gives. This is our principal aim and the main reason for our existence. Therefore, AA is more than a set of principles. It is a society of alcoholics in action. We must carry the message, else we ourselves can wither, and those who haven't been given the, the truth may die. I'm just going to get these out of the way. So, this is problems other than alcoholism. It says sobriety, freedom from alcohol, through the teaching and practice of the 12 steps is the sole purpose of an AA group. Groups have repeatedly tried other activities, and they have always failed. So that's what this is about. This is about the teaching and the practice of the 12 steps. Um, I've been to I've been to a lot of treatment centers. I've been to a lot of rehabs. I can't... My my poor father says I've been to 50 detoxes, and and that's not the truth, but that's what I did to that man, for him to think that I've been to that many. Um, Therapeutic communities, psych wards, jails, and I'd always come out, I mean, I'd say by, by my fifth rehab, I really didn't want to do this anymore. You know, I'd come out desperately, desperately wanting a solution. And I'm just going to say my experience and how I viewed Alcoholics Anonymous when I walked into it. When I walked into it for years, I'd, I'd stay in the meeting and I'd go home and my parents would ask me, my girlfriend asked me, they would say, well, how was the meeting? And I'd say it was terrible. Everyone's miserable in AA, you know. They're dying and whining and I, I just don't want to do it no more. I mean, and that's really the way I looked at Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you go to the meetings I go to, a lot of meet much different than that, you know. I was so blessed to walk into this group and to find people that had a solution to alcoholism. I mean, just because there's smoke doesn't mean there's fire. There's a lot of AA meetings where people are sober, but they don't have a solution to alcoholism, you know. Um, the last halfway house I was in, I loved halfway houses. I loved treatment centers. They've saved my life. I... uh Probably in my, the only time in my adult life that I found found any kind of peace of mind was in a psych ward or a treatment center. And uh, this last halfway house, I I started going to a meeting with a friend and I, uh, I deeply wanted to stay sober, but I was too terrified to ever ask anyone to be my sponsor. And uh, they had a temporary sponsorship book. So me and my friend Jack both wrote our names in this temporary sponsorship book. <laughs> I know, right? You ready for it? Two guys start walking towards me and Jack. And all I keep saying to Jack is, I hope the gay guy is not my sponsor. (laughs) Of course, the gay guy is my sponsor today. (laughs) The instrumental thing he did when he put his hand out to me, he says, How you doing? My name is Rick. Can I have your phone number? Thank God he took my phone number because I was way too scared and I was way too cool to ever call him. Um, I went back to the halfway house, I said to my friend, I'll never call this guy, and uh, three days later, he called me. When he called, there used to be a little old man, he used to sit next to the phone at the halfway house, and he used to, like, just always sit there, and he, uh, he'd always pick up the phone, and he said, Jameson, it's your sponsor. I'd walk down the steps, I'd be like this, no, 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 and, uh. And he said, all right, you know, Jameson's not here, and he'd hang up the phone. God bless him, three days later, he called again. He says he always gives every new guy two chances. And uh, the second time he called, <laughs> the same little old guy was sitting at the phone, and he starts calling for me. He says, Jameson, it's your sponsor. I walk down the steps. I'm doing the same thing. I'm going, no, no, I'm not here this little old guy holds the receiver of the phone and he says to me, you can't stay sober. You're homeless. And this guy wants to help you. And you won't talk to him? Spiritual experience number one. I mean, I saw a truth right there. This, that was God speaking through that man. I mean, all the barriers went down and I spoke with him. And uh, Rick's still my sponsor today. I mean, he's an amazing man because I couldn't sponsor me. I mean,
1: <laughs> uh.
2: so we continued on, and I remember the basket used to come around at that meeting at Hell's Kitchen, at the meeting, and uh, he would say, Jay, I notice when that basket comes around, you don't put no money in. I felt like saying, you stupid bastard, I'm homeless, and I'm in a halfway house. Of course I don't put no money in. I didn't say that. I uh, I said to him... I said, Rick, I said, I'm homeless. I'm in a halfway house. How am I going to put any money in the basket? He said, how many packs of cigarettes you smoke a day? I said, two or three. He said, you could put a nickel or a penny when that basket comes around because you ain't a visitor no more. You're a real member. And if you want to have something to say in this group, you're going to contribute to the fellowship that's going to save your life. <laughs> he had me. I mean, when he said about the cigarettes, I was like, you know, where do they get this stuff from? So... I continued on with Rick and uh, that home group. I hated that home group. My sponsor still a member of that group. Uh, I loved him so much. He's just such a, got such a contagious spirit, the man. But he used to tell me, we need to grow where we're planted. And I I just really know. I used to go home after that home group and just complain to my girlfriend like crazy how I just hate the group, you know. Rick was rather fast at me. He said uh, the first three steps when I did it with him, he said, are oh, you powerless over alcohol? Is your life unmanageable? I said, yes. <laughs> he said, do you believe something could help you? I said, yes. He's like, are you willing to make a decision to do some work? I said, yes. He said, here's a pen. And start writing him." it. I said, that's pretty mean. I was like, you know. <laughs> yeah. So that's how it went. I mean, I felt like I came of age in AA when I uh, did my fifth step with him. The first, I mean, if there was one thing I would change in the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, it's that illustration with the three friggin' columns. He said, do it just like it says in the book. I said, no problem. Well, it was a problem because I took so many months to write it, he actually got to the point, he said to me, listen, if you don't have it done by Saturday, I don't know what we're going to do with you. And it kind of made me feel like if I didn't have it done by Saturday, this relationship was over. So you know what I did? I stayed up to, like three in the morning, Friday night, and I finished writing it. <laughs> um, I brought it over to him Saturday, and he's like, where's the fourth column? I says, fourth column? I said, I did it just like it says in the book. He says, did you read on? I said, you damn right, I read on. I says, Rick, you got to be a genius to figure out that there's a fourth column if nobody tells you, you know. But I did do my first, fifth step with him, and I was terrified. I was terrified. I believe I did things that were just... Very bizarre and strange. I mean, when I run my... You identify, huh? When, when I run my life on my will, the things I do ain't pretty. You know, when I was terrified. I mean, there's some things I didn't even write on that inventory. I just didn't write them. And I went to him and he started sharing some of his stuff. And uh, God bless him that he did. Because I would have never ever gave him the stuff. I would have never ever shared that stuff with him. Um, I must have relapsed six times since Rick's been my sponsor. And every time I relapsed, he always uh, welcomed me back and said, let's see how we can redouble our spiritual efforts. You know, he never ever judged me. As a matter of fact, I don't know how many years he's been my sponsor, but I've only been resentful at him twice, and both times I've been drunk and high. One time I was trying to... One time I was on codeine, and I was, had a guy in the doctor's opinion with me, and it was like, yeah. Um, but while well, I was relapsing, and... uh keep coming in out of AA. I was uh me and my girlfriend broke up and I lived with her and I lost my job and I had no money. And I uh I went to live in New Jersey with a friend and I lived in his basement and I hated him. I mean I don't know but like, a friend just a guy I knew and I hated the guy and I and I lived in that basement and I was going to AA meetings and I uh I just didn't want to live no more. I couldn't talk to Rick because I had zero money. I had no job. I had no relations with any AAs. And I started going to meetings over here and I thought I hated the meeting, my old home group, I really hated the meetings where I was now. I mean, I'd go in the meetings and say, these people are just as sick as me. And, uh so one night, the guy I was living with was going to go to a Narcotics Anonymous meeting. Now, the only thing I hate more than Alcoholics Anonymous is Narcotics Anonymous.
1: <laughs>
2: and he said, would you like to go to the Narcotics Anonymous meeting? And I really didn't want to go, but I said, what the hell? And this is the loving hand of God again. I, uh, I went to that NA meeting, and the guy who was up at the podium, he says a lot of people say the only step you've got to do right is the first one. He says, all oh, the first step means is you're screwed. And when he said that, I knew I had to talk to that man, you know. And I went right up to him and I said, you're a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, aren't you? And he says, you know, I I am. And I let him know that I was, you know, I didn't know what to do. And he said, you know, there's this new meeting in uh, West Orange and it's going to be starting. Would you like to come to it? I said, I'd love to come to it. And he handed me two CDs. He handed me a CD of a guy named Earl H. and a guy named Chris R., Earl, I listened to Earl H first because that's more of an interesting name. And I listened to this, this, CD, and it was just so refreshing. I mean, what a, what a incredible story, what a beautiful recovery. And I wanted that. When I put the Chris R CD in, it was, it skipped every three seconds and we'd like go blip, blip, blip. And when I put that on, the way he pounded my hopelessness to me, I cried when I listened to that CD and I didn't sleep for three days. I never knew what it meant to be alcoholic. you know. I definitely knew what happened because I am an alcoholic. But I never knew what it meant to be alcoholic. And a lot of people say, the truth will piss you off but then it will set you free. Something like that. That wasn't the case for me. When I heard that and I realized my first step that I was hopeless and that there was a solution through these 12 steps and having a spiritual awakening, I was so relieved. I can't explain the, the relief I had when I heard that. Um, so I started going over this guy, Sean's house, once a week for an hour and we started on the title page of the big book. The only thing is that I was very, very sick and I didn't have time to go for an hour every week from the title page, page of the big book, you know. And I told him and I said, Sean, I, we've been doing this for three weeks and I'm dying. I, I need to move faster. He said, no problem. You know, and I started writing inventory. I got to amends. When I got to amends, I made like two. And I stopped and I spent more time complaining about people in AA than worrying about my spiritual life. You know, I, uh, if you weren't talking about God in the steps, I judged you. I mean, res- resentment's the number one offender. The way I, I mean, when I'm resenting someone, I'm hurting me. But I never really put those dots together back then. And I, uh, I drank again. And the funny thing, when I was in the, de- wow, oh, you give an alcoholic a little bit of knowledge with no experience is a dangerous thing. I was in the, I was in the detox, and speakers would come up, and I'd be telling them, "No, you got this all backwards, buddy." I'm like, "You gotta, you gotta." I mean, this poor fellow once said, "You know, wait, wait a year to go through the steps," and I just shut him down in the detox. And this is a man who's taken uh, an hour out of his night to come up and share his experience with us, and you know, <laughs> so that's what I did. Um, before I got here and before I even ever met Rick I uh, I remember one night I was uh, I drank like a liter of, of uh, vodka and I was doing a lot of other things and I stole my uncle's Lincoln Town Call I stole his, uh, his uh, Lincoln Town car and I remember just saying God I want to die God I want to die God I want to die and I pulled over on the turnpike and I just kept saying God I want to die God I want to die and I ran into traffic A car hit me, broke both my wrists, both my elbows, and a big gash in my head. After that hit me, all I remember saying is, God, I want to live. God, I want to live. God, I want to live. (laughs) The insanity of that is I had a car running on the shoulder. The guy kept driving, and I got up, and I walked back to my, my uncle's house, and I left the car. When I got back in the house, I wasn't going to go to the hospital. And, and then my other uncle came from down the shore and he brought me to the hospital. And God bless the families that are here, the mothers, the wives, the uncles, the aunts. Every scrape I ever got in, my uncle was there for me. Um, he, uh, I don't know what to say. And I, talk, I, I was talking to him a couple of days ago and I wanted to let him know how much I love them, You know, because for so long, Every rehab, not every rehab, but most rehabs I ever got in and uh, detoxes, he's the man who drove me. And he's the man who would send me cigarettes. And he was the man who gave me money. That time I uh, still wanted to kill myself after that. And I remember putting my poor mother who, to bring me to the psych ward. And she drove me to the psych ward. And my mother, I remember washing me up while I was in the psych ward and her just crying. And uh, when I was in that psych ward, <laughs> I was so relieved that I was in the psych ward. <laughs> And they gave me a three-day evaluation. Yes, Cindy, you know the deal? They gave me a three-day evaluation, and they said, well, you're not insane. You're an alcoholic and a drug addict. You know, we can't help you until you stop doing those things. And I said, so does that mean I have to leave? <laughs> and the, <laughs> they, um, the lady said, yes, you have to leave. I said, but I'll kill myself. She said, no, you won't. And I cried. And I cried getting kicked out of a psych ward. Because I knew I'd drink. You know, I knew I'd drink again. Um, when I drink, I can't control the way I drink. And when I stop drinking, I don't know when I'm going to start again. I mean, I had this, uh, just to share a story about my loss of choice when it came to alcohol. I had a guy I was in a detox with, and we were roommates for like, I don't know, I must have been there 10 days this time. And we were talking about recovery, and I said, I really want to do this. I mean, I really want to do this. He says, great, I got uh, I got plenty of money, I got a car, I got a place to live. He's like, I'll pick you up when we get out of here, and we can go to AA meetings together. So I got out, and I was staying at my girlfriend's house because I didn't have a place, and he comes to pick me up. He throws $2,000 on the floor. He says, here's $2,000, and he throws it on the floor. And he says, there's a girl waiting for us at the ball. If you don't have a place to stay, you could stay at my house. And uh, we're going to get drunk. Now, those are four, four of my favorite things. <laughs> I don't have to be responsible. He'll let me live in his house. He's giving me free money. He's giving me booze. And there's a girl that wants to be with us. Well, the car was moving away. I says, please let me out. And he kept driving. And I jumped out of the car while it was moving. I went back to my girlfriend's house. And I went on one of the bunk beds, and I just couldn't stop crying. I just couldn't stop crying. The next day, I woke up and I walked right to the bar and I drank. How do you explain that? Every part of me wanted not to drink, but I drank again. I mean, for so long I thought I can come out my alcoholism just not wanting to drink. I mean, my father—I mean, my father's a model hard drinker. My my dad drinks. I mean, he even does drugs like twice a year, and he stops at nine o'clock. He says, look, just stop at 9 o'clock. And I remember every time I'd come back from detox, he'd say, you can drink, just don't do the other things. You know, and I really, I really wanted to do that. But, and, and it didn't work. So I thought, you know, me not wanting to drink would be good enough. And I mean, I had not, I had that feeling of not wanting to drink for years. What am I going to have a stronger not wanting to drink this time? I mean, it's just not a solution. Um... I love this saying, and it's, a, it's kind of a paradox, and it just really put the powerless thing in perspective for me. There's nothing you can do to keep yourself sober. The second thing is you better act like you don't know the first thing. If I think I have power, choice, or control while I'm drinking or while I'm not drinking, if I decide if I drink or not, I'm not powerless. I remember I had this, uh, a sponsor of mine came up to me, and he said to me, he said, no, no. He said, look at the, look at the steps. He says, it, it says we were powerless over alcohol. It's past tense. It means not no more. And I said, I said, oh, shit, he's got me. And I was thinking about it, and I really, I did. I said, yeah, you got that one. There must be a glitch in the program. And I called my sponsor, and I says, I says Rick, do you know it says we were powerless over alcohol? He says, of course it does, Jay, because all the steps are in the past tense because they're steps of experience. I mean, I I wouldn't have known how to answer that, and that's the truth, you know. It's taken me 29 years to do my first step. A friend of mine who's in this room relapsed, and he went to a group, and they said to him, you've got to do a better first step. He's like, I just drank this Saturday. You know, I mean,
1: how do you get better than that?
2: You know? (laughs) Um, You know, my... I remember the first time coming at the second step, and I used to tell my sponsor that I didn't believe in a God. And he said, Well, pray anyway. <laughs> I said, Pray anyway. He said, Yeah, pray anyway. He said, God's so powerful, he can come meet you at the conception of nothing. And I started praying to nothing, you know. <laughs> in my second step today, I have an incredible willingness to be wrong. You know, and it shows up all the time, and I really try to be uh, open-minded about that. I mean, I mean, I think in we agnostics, it's just pasted with the word prejudice. And all my life, I've been so prejudiced. I mean, it's so funny. I would, if you would have asked me years ago, if I think I'd have a, a middle-aged gay man from Minnesota to be my spiritual leader, I would say to you, no. <laughs> um, you know, and I was willing to believe. I was willing to believe that there was something bigger than me, you know. And that's how I started. And, uh, I think We Agnostics is such a beautiful chapter because it always just keeps talking about changing your mind, you know, to change. And, uh, when I, I like how Kerry says, you know, our idea didn't work, but the God idea does. You know, she pointed that out to me in the book and I'm like, that's cool. You know, that's real cool. And my third step is I gotta be convinced that my life ran on my will can't be a success. I, I forget how it exactly says it in the book. It says something beautiful, and it's helped me so much with resentment. It says any life ran on self-will can hardly be a success, not just alcoholics. It says any life. So when people are running their lives, not only do they hurt themselves, they hurt me too. And that's really helped me when I've looked at resentments from that angle. Um, <laughs> the guys I sponsor, when we get to the third step, prayer to affirmation of that step. I ask him to hold my hands. The reason I do that, I tell him, is because it makes them uncomfortable.
1: <laughs>
2: and it's funny. And when I say something like that, and you say something like that to some to somebody, it's amazing how they stop thinking about themselves right away. You know. My uh, my fourth step was ridiculous. I mean, the pettiness. Yeah, Mike heard it, so that's why he's laughing. It was just. The, the petty things that were just eating my lunch, you know, the things I could not shake. I, uh, a resentment's the number one offender. When I forgive someone, I'm not forgiving them for them. I'm forgiving them to set myself free. And when I set myself free, by default, we both get set free. You know, I'm reading this book called "Being Nobody, Going Nowhere," <laughs> and I was, uh, I'm at this coffee shop next to my house. And I got this book, and it's on the table, and it's upside down. And this beautiful corporate woman sits right next to me at my table. That never happens. She
1: <laughs>
2: she, she,
1: <laughs>
2: she, says to me, what are you reading?
1: <laughs>
2: I flip the book over, and she says, be nobody going nowhere. And she gets up and she walks right away from me. I got notes, damn it. I forget what book this is, but Don Miguel Ruiz also wrote it. It's non-conference approved, but it's something about fear and love and I think it's just so beautiful. Love has no expectations. Fear is filled with expectations. Love has no obligations. Fear is filled with obligations. When we act from obligation, our resistance makes us suffer. When we fail to act on our obligation, we feel guilty. Love has respect, not only for others, but also for ourselves. Fear respects nothing, including itself. When I feel sorry for myself, I do not respect myself. When I feel sorry for you, I do not respect you. Love is patient. Fear is impatient. Love does not pity, fear is filled with pity, especially with self-pity. Love is detached, fear is filled with attachments and the dread of having to let go. Love is kind, fear is too self-involved to be kind. It's funny, when I came to this group, I think it was George, and I came in the group, I said to my, I, said to, I think it was George, I said, you know, I really want to kill myself. And he says, great. He says, because there's nothing in between you and your God. You know. uh, Then there was uh, another man at the Bower Mansion. He was telling me, if you walk through your fears, they'll go away. No. I mean, that's my experience. But if you don't walk through your fears, you will go insane. You know, and I have a God today that I can walk through those fears. Um, I've been walking through the dark for 30 years, and I'm still scared of the dark. So I don't think we could practice or oh, fears and get rid of them, like fear of financial insecurity. You can give me more money; it doesn't treat that. You know, the only thing that treats that is a relationship with God. You know, um, <laughs> my sixth step is not so much a state of doing, but a state of being. It's like when you get your attitude in the right place; it's amazing how you're ready. I mean, I can't bring my own surrenders upon myself. I can't will my spiritual growth. A friend of mine, Lisa, says something funny about surrender. She says, if two countries are going to war and they all dress up and they get in their war gear and they get their swords and they run at each other, one of the countries ain't just going to stop and say, well, I surrender. I believe a lot of times we have to take those beatings you know, to grow. I had a behavior of mine that was just, that I, I struggle with. I really struggle with. And I called, uh, I called my friend and I said, "Lack of power is my dilemma with this." And he said, "No, it's not." And he says, "You know, you have more power than you could ever imagine. You know, look at your life. You just don't want to walk through the, you don't want to walk through the pain and be uncomfortable. If I keep practice, practicing selfishness, of course, it's going to be there. You know. Um, and I've been absent from that behavior for a little while now, and it's, uh, it's quite a trip. I've been feeling God in that loneliness, and that some nights I cry." you know, because I ain't filling it up with that. I have a painful awareness. Um. <laughs> yeah, and if you think you could fix yourself, go fix yourself. I mean, I've been trying it for years. One of the beautiful, th- most beautiful things I've ever heard in an Alcoholics Anonymous was God helps those who help others. And the guy said, no, he doesn't. You've been trying to help yourself all your life and look where it's got you. God helps those who help other people. When you reach out to someone else, God reaches out for both of you. The perspective change I had when I heard that was life-changing. In my seventh step, I'm bringing everything to God. You know, I used to have a beef with therapy, and I don't know why, when it's just another, I think, tool with our steps. I mean, just to dig a little deeper. The only confusion is it doesn't treat alcoholism. Um, My, uh, Seven step to be humble means to know I'll never be perfect, you know. No. I'm reading a book, <laughs> and it's talking about attachments, and it says it's from an old European root. I don't know what that root is, but it says that the attachments mean the things you're bonded or nailed to. And it just gave me such a different perspective of the things in my life that I'm nailed to. Um, I asked my father. I heard a speaker tape. I heard this guy say, well, you know, if you're having problems locating your character defects, get your father, get your mother, get someone you work with, get a couple of friends, invite them over and say, I'm having a problem finding out my character defects. Could you let me know? (laughs) I heard that and I said, I'll try that. (laughs) So I figured, who's the most cynical, straightforward man I know? And that's my father. He's got, it's funny, he's like a spiritual gangster. He's got like these bumper sticker one-liners from... I said to him, I said, so, Dad, what do you think my character defects are? But you can only give me five. (laughs) And without blinking it, I mean, I I couldn't believe it. And the perspective from someone who's not alcoholic is very different than ours. He didn't even blink an eye. He said, the first one is, you can't stay sober. (laughs) He said, the second one is, using the information you learn in a practical way, and the third one is communication, and that's all the character defects you have. I mean, it was refreshing to look at that, because I never ever got any of those character defects from anybody in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I think they're all valid. You know, uh, the eighth step, I don't believe we get free in the ninth step. I believe we get free in the eighth step. You know, when we have that willingness, we're already set free. In the ninth step, we get to help other people get set free, to loosen their hearts. You know, for the bondage we put them in. You know, what I've done to my family is just I'm terrible. Um, I'm going to tell my Billy Madison story. I told it here last time and I spoke for 10 minutes. I like it. Last time I told it, no one else seemed to like it. Um, I had an amends with this chubby kid I used to beat up in, uh, like, fourth grade. And I said to my sponsor, I don't need to make this amends. He's over it. I'm just going to bring up stuff from the past. I'm going to hurt his feelings. And he says, no, no, that's a Billy Madison's amend. I said, what the hell is a Billy Madison amend? He said, you ever see the movie Billy Madison? I said, yeah, I, I did see the movie. He says, at the end of the movie, Billy Madison used to beat up a kid in grade school. And Billy Madison calls him up on the phone and tells the kid from grade school, you know, I just want to try to set that right. I'm sorry about beating you up in high school. The kid pulls out a list that says, people to kill, and he takes Billy Madison's name off the list. (laughs) You guys seem to like it this time. Um, A few months ago, I was praying for a sex ideal because my old one, I outgrew, and nothing was coming to me. And I'm saying, I'm just telling everybody, you know, I'm praying, nothing's coming, I don't know what to say. And, you know, when sponsors used to tell me that, I'm like, well, you're not really praying. <laughs> and I really was, and nothing was happening. And I, and I went over to my sponsor's house, and I told him, you know, I deeply want to rewrite a sex ideal, you know, so I could fit myself to what God would have me be. And uh, he pulled out a book. He says, I got something just perfect for you. It's amazing that I'm praying. I'm saying nothing's coming. And he pulls this out of a book called Living in Sin. And uh, I use this now. and I'm going to read it. Because I think it's profound. I could have never came up with this. I mean... Number one. The sexual relationship between single adults must be just that. A relationship between single adults. It must not be a violation of either person's marital bond. If one's marital vow is broken by a sexual affair, that affair becomes an expression of dishonesty and will finally be destructive to both the marriage and the character of the violating person. Number two. A sexual relationship between single adults must be a union of love and caring, not just a union of convenience and desire. I'm going to stop there just for a second on two. All my relationships with women and all my life were always based on convenience and desire. They weren't based on love and intimacy. I went out with women. I went out with a girl for three years I couldn't stand talking to. And 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 when she finally, I had to be removed from that relationship, and I, and I couldn't stand her. And it's, I love a quote a guy from Colorado says. He says, everything I learned about women, I learned from men who know nothing about women. And that's thats pretty much, everything I learned about women was in bars, in shooting galleries, in, in the park selling drugs. I mean, yeah. Number three, a sexual relationship does not appropriately, appropriately initiate a relationship. Rather, a sexual relationship must grow out of the bond that two people build together over a period of time. Sex is not properly shared until many other things are shared, such as time, values, life stories, friendship, communication, and a sense of deep trust and responsibility. In other words, sex is not appropriate until there is a structure that will protect each person's vulnerability. 4. Intimacy is by its nature an intensely private and discreet human activity. Appropriate vulnerability requires that it must be kept that way. If both partners are not willing to protect the vulnerability of the other, the relationship becomes hurtful, hateful, and destructive. The sacred exclusive quality of those special moments cannot be compromised by gossip, by indiscretion, or even after the relationship has come to an end, by an expression of one person's anger. The unwillingness to make this commitment or to carry through on it once made would argue that the relationship was built on the power of ego needs and not the vulnerability of personhood. There's a lot more stuff on this, but it just spoke so much to my heart. And I keep remember saying to my sponsor, I was praying for weeks and God wasn't giving me nothing. I got more lists. My ninth step. I don't know how people come up here and remember all that stuff. I was saying to my mom, it's all the drinking and drugs, that's why I'm so burnt. And she said, sweetie, you've always been burnt. <laughs> the first amends I made was one that was just eating me up, the guilt the guilt I had from it. I mean, my Uncle Kenneth, the one I was telling you about, pulled me out of every scrape and just, I mean, practically saved my life. And uh, my grandfather passed away, and I stole his credit card, and I charged $10,000 on it. My uncle paid that. I told him don't pay it. He said, but you'll go to jail. And he paid it. I'm responsible for that. Uh, my uncle paid that because he loved me. Um, so when I first got when I first got sober, I didn't have a job and I didn't have much money. And I and I used to work for my uncle once a month and he used to pay me a hundred dollars when I worked for him for that day. And I said when I approached him, I said, Uncle Ken, I I don't have money, but I work for you once a month and you give me a hundred dollars. You know, that money I robbed from you, can you uh can you take once a month that hundred dollars and put it towards the ten thousand dollars I owe you? And he says, uh, sure, but let's see you do it. You know, and I it's been a long time and I've been doing that and I also send him money now. But the gift of that is not that I get to pay the money back, but that I get to have a relationship with my uncle that I never ever had before. My uh second one was to my brother, he was locked up in prison for five years and I was not much of a brother. My brother was locked up for five years and I uh, barely sent him any money, any letters, maybe visited him three times. And my brother's always been a better brother than me. And I'll say this on tape, better brother than me than I've been to him. You know, when I came to him, I had like a Christmas list when I came, when I walked to him and I said, you know, Jay, I'd like to talk to you about some things. I'm trying to do this step in Alcoholics Anonymous and I'd like to try to get the books to square with you. And he looks at me, he just shakes his head. He's like, I really don't give a shit about that. He's like, I love you. And he's like, "Please just do something nice for mommy and daddy." And I'm going to talk about amends for a while, but almost every time I've made amends to somebody, they always want me to do something for somebody else. If you want to see the hand of God in amends and the humanity and how much love pe- people really have in their hearts, that's where I've seen that. I mean I've been split open like a cantaloupe in amends. I just can't, I can't believe it. But my brother's drinking and drugging now. he's a funny guy, and he says to me. You know how I like, kind of said, don't worry about that amends. He's like, you know, maybe we could try to work that out again. <laughs> and I will do that in the future. And amends is about change, and I have changed, and I believe I'm a, I believe I have integrity in the relationship with my brother. You know, whatever my brother asks me, the first thing I do to, before I answer him or do it, is go to prayer, and I feel it'll be perfect in spirit, and I don't have to worry about it. Um, huh. This next amends while I was sober, I beat up my uncle's drug dealer. <laughs> yeah, my uncle's crippled. He's paralyzed from uh, IV drug use. He got an abscess in his spine It ate away his nerve column, and he can't he can't really move too much. We think. Yeah, I know. So he was paralyzed for a long time. He couldn't really move. And I used to go, and I used to help clean up his apartment. And while I was cleaning up, his drug dealer just walks in the house. And I put my hand out and I say, you can't just be walking in this house like that. And he says, get your hands out of my face. And I punched him. When I punched him, we dragged the fight outside, we started fighting, and uh, it finally got broken up. And I knew my behavior was so poor, and it's just not the way I want to be living. And I beat myself up for it like crazy. And I knew the only thing I could do was to approach this man and see what I could do to make that right. You know, my, there's no excuse for my behavior. Um. <laughs> so I'm painting the stoop a few weeks later, and who comes on the bike? Slick. I mean, his name is Slick. When your name is Slick, you got to know you're a little dangerous. So Slick comes down, he's on his bike, and he's coming to my uncle's house, and I make a prayer. And I said, God, I don't know what to do. And he says, you know, just go make that right. And I, and I walk over to him, and I said, Slick. You know, I want to let you know I was wrong about what I did. And if there's anything I could do to make that right. And he goes back like this. And he goes like that to me, and I flinch because I thought he was going to hit me. And he puts his hand out to shake my hand. And he says, it ain't no big thing, brother. The next one is, I stole two bowling balls from Country Lane's bowling alley 15 years ago. I went in and I said, "Can I please speak with the manager?" And they said, "Well, the manager's really busy. Could you wait?" I said, "No problem." I wait about 10 minutes. The lady says, "Can I help you?" I says, "I don't think so." Another five minutes goes by. She goes, "Can you tell me what you're here for?" I says, "Well, yeah. Well, 15 years ago, I stole two bowling balls, and I just want to repay that and see if there's anything else I can do to make that right." And she says, "One second. I'll get the manager." <laughs> The manager comes comes from around the desk. Her name oh I me not say her name. She comes from around the desk and I swear to God, she, she stared at me for thirty seconds. It was it was it was disturbing. <laughs> she just and she says, It's funny that you come in on this day because this is the last day for our toy drive that you could donate money. If you donate forty dollars, consider your conscience clear. What's the chances that I come in on the last day of their toy drive? And my brother said something to me while he was drunk. It it just goes to show how God works with everybody. My brother's drunk. He says, you know what you really got to do to cap that amends off? He goes, every year you got to donate $40 to that toy drive. (laughs) I mean, he's right, you know. There's a couple of amends I made that people would not see me. You know, they wanted... There was a girl I went out with for years, and she robbed, and she stole with me, and... uh. I robbed her, I robbed her family, I, I, mean, I did all kinds of terrible things. And uh, her, both her parents are in Narcotics Anonymous. And when I called, the father said, what the hell do you want? And I said, I'm just trying to square some things up with your daughter that I've done in the past. And he goes, well, that's the only reason I would even take this call if you said that. And he says, I'll let her know, but I don't think she'll call you back. She, she never did. But this girl said to me that she'd never be like me. And the shame is she's one of us. When I was with her, she wasn't drinking or doing drugs. And now she is, and she's living in Harlem on the methadone program, and she is one of us. You know, and it just, I mean, it breaks my heart that she saw me go through it, and she's suffering from that illness too. Um, There's another two women that would not see me. I wanted a detox, and I asked if I could stay in their house, and they treated me like a king for two weeks. I really did want to detox. I just didn't know it was that hard. Um, and when I stayed in the house, I was drinking, I was drugging, and I was abusing them. And years later, my brother started going out with that girl. And I was, she was the next on my list. And I said to my brother, I want to make amends to her. And he says, well, I'm breaking up with her. I'm saying that we're not saying. He said, can you wait on that? Because, you know, that might influence my relationship. And I waited on that. And I gave her an email, and she told my brother, that son of a bitch will never change. And I don't ever want him to talk, talk to me again, and he'll always be that way. And i got to bear that brunt. You know, the way I treated that woman who reached out to me is totally, you know, appropriate, you know. Um, there's a drunk guy, Gary, who lives under, underneath me, and I robbed $100 from him. When I went up to him, I says, you know, Gary, I robbed $100 from you. Is there anything else I've done to harm you? He goes, I didn't even know you robbed $100 from me. Um, I said to him, I could afford $20 a week if that'll be okay with you. And this guy's drunk. This is a guy who wakes up shaking. I said, I could afford to give you $20 every Friday, and I'll have you $20 again next Friday. And I go to approach him the next Friday with that $20, the second visit. And he says, I don't want that money. And he was drunk at the time. And he says, just take your girlfriend out with the rest of that money. Once again, this is a guy who's drunk, who's thinking about somebody else. I mean, this is a guy who's trapped in alcoholism. And it blows my mind. I, I stole comic books. I mean, I got a lot of, I mean, men's stories. And I think it's the surgery of recovery. I mean, I never was able to really connect the dots. I remember a friend of mine saying, I don't understand how amends changes things. And I don't think it's made to be understood with, with our head. You know what I'm saying? It's it's one of those things you just can't explain in words, you just have to do it. Um. Yeah, so these comic books, I was stealing comic books from the store all the time and I had like, I guess, 60 bucks worth and the store wasn't there no more. But there was a chain of that store. When I called up and I asked to speak to the manager and I told him my situation, that I stole these comic books and I'd like to pay pay for them, he says, I worked in that store about 16 years ago when you were stealing those comic books. I knew, but I never said anything. I don't know, I just thought that was strange, and he remembered my name, and I paid that money. Um, there was a lawyer who had gave me work to do, you know, I had the kindness of her heart. She gave me this work to do, and it was, uh, she paid me $50, and she was the next one on the list. I got in touch with her. She was, when I called her on that day, it was her birthday. I didn't know it would be her birthday, and she was just disbarred. She had no job, and she had no money. And I called her up and I said, I'd like to give you that fifty dollars because I never did that did that work you paid me for. And she says, Well wonderful, I could really use it. It's my birthday and I have no money. So she came over to my apartment and we walked outside. I gave her the money. And remember the guy Gary I was saying, the drunk guy that I tried to give the money to? I give her the fifty dollars. She walks into his apartment and he comes running out. I'm saying, What she comes out and I said. Why the hell is Gary running out of the apartment like someone's going to beat him up? She says, well, since you gave me the $50 you owe me, that, that bastard stole my bike. I want at least $20 a week from him. <laughs> when I got halfway through my amends, I went up to my sponsor, my sponsor, Rick, and I said, Rick, I'm entering the world of the spirit. And he said, no, you're not. I mean, I had such arrogance about it. He said, no, you're not. He said, getting even is not what Alcoholics Anonymous is about. This is, this is about giving. And it put me right in my place. To think I'm doing something special to give people back their stuff. Um, the 10 step is a walking step. It's a step of life. I mean, I think when I talk to Mike about it, he's always asking me where I'm having fun. And uh, I heard a guy named Ernest Kurt say... Because in our ten step it says love and tolerance is our code. He said tolerance is the active embrace of people's differences. Do I actively embrace people's differences in Alcoholics Anonymous, or do I judge? My brother has a prison tent step for me. Yes, he does. I uh. My nephew came down from Florida, <laughs> and he was mugging people. I mean, literally, with his friends, and I was furious. I was furious. And weeks before that, he's just been, I mean, he's hes just out of his mind. He's very sick. He's a very sick person. And I was just building up and building up. And then when he was mugging people, I just blew up on him. I just lost my mind. And I had no proof of it, but I knew that was the truth. And I lost my mind. I'm screaming. I'm yelling. And my brother comes over. He comes to my apartment, my apartment. He says, do you know what your problem is? <laughs> I says no what's my problem he's like you don't deal with stuff right away you let it build up build up and build up until you blow up he says in prison i couldn't do that i had to deal with my beef right away and it just put in perspective this guy's talking about the 10 step from a prison mentality and i think that's what we do if i stay current i don't act bizarre you know huh. 11 step i uh I mean, we ask for power and knowledge in the 11th step to do God's will, not JMO's will, you know. And that's been a consistent thing for me. I used to have a, a roommate that used to pray and meditate and we used to do nightly review together and give each other considerations. If you've never done that, I can't express how intimate of a relationship I got with that man by doing that. Um, I mean, I remember, <laughs> I remember nothing and I remember all the questions on, on the nightly review. I mean, I don't know why I think that's cool, because I've never done nothing really consistent in my life, and I do that consistently. I've always had the concept, I mean, I had to get God out of the skies and into my heart, you know. And uh, I heard a woman from Texas, I think Willie B. She says, let everybody treat me tomorrow the way I treated them today. And that prayer just, I mean, even when I say it, I get nervous, because it's just such an accountable prayer. Um... Meditation, it's funny you go, on, you go on vacation and you rest your body, but your mind's still going. You know, and that outlet of meditation has been able to bring me back to center and back into the moment and back into right now. It's not that, not that people meditate wrongly or I meditated wrongly. I just didn't do nothing at all. I don't believe meditation is torture. Have fun with it. I do, I do anywhere from three to five minutes of meditation at night. Sometimes I do it for thirty minutes but I don't do it so that I'm angry and I don't want to do it, you know, and I try to have fun with that. <clears throat> my 12th step, <laughs> I trick newcomers. <laughs> I mean, that's my whole, my whole deal is manipulation. I say, I say, how you doing? My name's Jameson. Where are you from? Do you have a home group? Do you have a sponsor? Would you like to hang out? Do You got a big book? Come on over. And, and I can't tell you how well that has worked. I don't think there's enough people going to people and and offering yourself to them and saying, How you doing? What's up? I mean, I hear a lot of guys say spiritual consent, you need spiritual consent. Listen, am I sponsoring and doing for me what he did for me? I want to be here i was w- in working with others it says, remember, they're very ill you know and I'm just excited about that I'm excited about that i was I was sponsoring here I can give you guys some uh some things not to do. I was sponsoring eleven guys and eight guys who were counting days. Don't do that. I I couldn't go to work one Monday because I sat down with like six of them, and I felt like I was sucked dry. Not that you can't sponsor a lot of people. You can because I ain't. I mean I ain't answer man. I'm just sharing the, the experience in this in in this joy. I sponsor George, George, what is the only rule I have?
1: <laughs> That's right. No
2: giving your sponsor a beaten. So, <laughs>
1: um,
2: okay, with all those new guys? It's just too much. Can you sponsor a lot of guys? Absolutely. Like that. no. but I was, a- I was going up to people asking them about sponsorship that don't sponsor nobody and the crazy information I was getting I mean it's amazing if we're not accountable to other people how far way off we can get and I believe in a real way I'm accountable to four people and three of them are in this room I went up to Mike and I said to him Mike I'm sponsoring too many people and he says you know what you're praying too much you're meditating too much and you're writing too much inventory while you're at it throw that little blue book away And it hit me. That's what we do here. That's our prime... There's nothing else we do here. Everything else we do here is to get to that. You know, um... I want to thank Sean for bringing me to the hospital this Friday. I did not want to go to the hospital, and it was the most exciting night I've had probably in six months. I'm gonna end with this. There's a couple stories of this. Be if if you if you worked in the emergency room for about an hour I mean for a year, you can write a national bestseller. You you just can. I was in there for six hours and I got three stories. I I, I go in, I'm sitting down in the back, I'm waiting to get seen, and I see this kid and he's uh he's dope sick. I'm just sharing this because this is about practicing these principles. This is Alcoholics Anonymous. But I said to him, it looks like you're pretty dope-sick. He said, how'd you know? I said, I'm a specialist. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: uh,
2: uh, And I did like our beautiful big book says. I found out all I could about him. And I knew when I was dope-sick back then, if I just wasn't thinking about me, it wasn't so bad. And I just kept letting him talk, kept letting him talk. And I says, have you ever tried to get clean before? And he says, yeah, for years. And I says, how have you been trying to do that? He says, I've been going to Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, if I've been talking to you for long. you don't even drink. I said, that's the problem. You're in the wrong place. I don't know why this is so controversial. If you don't drink, how are you ever going to do 12-step work? How are you ever going to feel at home? How are you going to lie every time you raise your hand and say you're an alcoholic when you're not? Why don't you go to the fellowship? I mean, there's there's a beautiful new fellowship, A&A. There's Narcotics Anonymous. There's Cocaine Anonymous that has an open primary purpose. I mean, they they believe in all substances. If the most fundamental thing you're going to do to change your life is 12-step work, and a new guy comes up to you and he says, Jay, what was your drinking like? And I say, I ain't ever drank. You lost them. And I got to share with him. The next guy who came in, I mean all these people I'm going to talk about were sitting right next to me. The next guy who comes into my barber and he smoked too much PCP. <laughs> they start asking him, I don't even know why I'm going to tell this story. They start asking him, and I'm voting for him. I'm like rooting. They say, what state are you in?
1: He says,
2: New Jersey? And I'm like, yes. They say to him, what year is it? He says, 1988, 2001. Why are you trying to trick me, doctor? And when he said that, I, could, I just couldn't stop laughing. And, and I didn't want to go to the hospital. The next story I'm going to tell, I'm going to try to tell it quick. It's bizarre. It's just bizarre. There's this guy who came in. He has tattoos all over, no shirt on, blood everywhere. Yelling, I'm a gangster. Screaming. Yeah. Carrying off about it now. And there's people dying in here. And I'm, I am praying the whole time because I am just ready to lose it. And he's screaming, yo, they tried to rob me. They tried to take my jewelry. He, this guy pulled a gun in my face, but I punched him, and then his friend pistol whipped me. I'm going to illustrate this story just to show what actors we are and how fearful we really are. His girlfriend comes in, and the doctor says, We need to give you some staples. It's just a superficial wound, and we've got to put some staples in your head. Now, this guy who's been carrying on for an hour,
1: intimidating the
2: hell out of me, acting all gangster, when they were ready to put staples in his head, I swear to God, this is exactly what he said. He said,
1: No, 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 I'm
2: gonna tell my mommy!
1: <laughs> I swear to God.
2: And it just goes to show, I mean, most of my life I was very violent, but I was terrified. You know, I was truly terrified. Um, There's a couple things I was going to talk about, but I ain't got much time, but I was going to talk about the... I mean, in our long form, in our traditions, in the seven tradition, it talks about spiritual heritage. And to keep the integrity of that heritage, I believe, while we have this information, I approached a guy a few weeks ago, and he shared in a meeting, and I don't do this to be a jerk. I approached him, he said, we could share whatever we want in AA meetings, we can complain, and it really doesn't matter, because that's what it's about. And he's 10 years sober, and I went up to him, and I said... I said, where does it say that in our literature? He says, it don't, but we don't got to do what it says in any books. I said, so my grandmother can come here and talk about some out-of-space shit? I mean, and I wish I didn't get so excited when I approached him about it, but it just gets to be ridiculous. And I was walking in and out of AA for eight years because no one was taking any responsibility to talk to people. I don't believe in public humiliation. I will talk to someone after the meeting. Another thing in the long form of the tent tradition, it talks about, talks about three things we don't talk about in AA. But there's two things that you don't talk about in a bar and you don't express your views from a podium or in a meeting in AA. And that's your your religious beliefs? Yes, and politics. And those are two things carried over. I mean, we don't talk about those in bars either. The other thing that I've been approached with, which I still get approached with this, people say... It's about attraction rather than promotion. Well, no, it's as a public relations policy is about attraction rather than promotion. My third step tells me I'm going to promote my new way of life in Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. This is about hope and freedom, and people come to me all the time like I'm trying to sell them a toaster or something. I mean, my life has changed, and i i mean, if you talk to anyone in my family or any people in AA long enough to see what's happened to me. I was a guy who almost didn't sober, didn't get out of bed for a year and wished, wished to die. I was on more psych medication than I can count. Why was that? You know, I mean, when I really jumped into this program and I found this, oh, this group, this group changed my life. I mean, the love i seen here when people were celebrating, I mean, gave me goosebumps over there. I mean, when I first came here, thank God Mike welcomed me. I said, you know, I'm confused about this 11 step. I mean, it's got like directions with stuff. And he said, come, sit down with me. Uh, I'm going to try to end with this. Mike said the fourth legacy of Alcoholics Anonymous should be fun. The other thing is if God's our Father, what do children do?